Chapter 4 The Missing Years We were living in this same house in 1940, my grandfather began. The war had started a year earlier, in 1939, and I was working for the war office in Whitehall. I first met your grandmother at Oxford University. She was at Lady Margaret Hall and was studying linguistics. We began courting in our second year and got engaged a year or two after graduation and finally moved to London when I began working for the Foreign Office and then got married at the Brompton Oratory in Knightsbridge. After a year or two of marriage, Susan got pregnant and we purchased this house just a few months before our son, your father, Robert, was born. We only had the one child, but he's a wonderful little chap, so full of questions and was interested in everything. Of course, he followed the identical track educationally that you and I have taken. Hydney House, Harrow, and then Oxford. After he got his degree, he once again followed in his mother's and my footsteps and joined the Foreign Office and began his diplomatic service. During those years, while your father was growing up, your grandma was a housewife, and I was working at the Foreign Office. When Robert went to Harrow, she decided to put her degree to use and got a job translating German into English for the ministry. She met a group of women at the ministry who weren't only translating but also deciphering communications from the German government that had become increasingly alarming. She became rather good at it. Germany was behaving irrationally and this new chap, Adolf Hitler, who had recently been imprisoned for treason, had been released and had become Germany's new Chancellor. Things were not looking good in Europe, and war was becoming more and more imminent day by day. At that time, I was about a year away from retirement. When the war began in 1939, Robert was doing something rather hush-hush with the government. We never really knew what it was, and we never talked about it. In 1940, the war was in full swing, and everyone was doing their bit, and in the autumn of that year, the Luftwaffe began bombing raids every night on all the big cities in England, including London. That time of the war was known as the Blitz. A cousin of mine, Buzzer Haddingham, lived with his wife Lois and their three kids, Peter, David and Jane, in the Channel Islands on the island of Guernsey, and had mentioned that if ever we were considering evacuating London, we'd be more than welcome to come and stay with them for as long as was necessary. They had a large house, a five-bedroom Victorian, called Les Blis, so your grandmother and I discussed it and decided to close up this house and take Buzzer and Lois up on their kind offer. It was the worst decision of our life, actually. The first couple of years were genuinely nice. Buzzer was a barrister and was very involved in home defence. That, in some ways, was what I had done with the government for my whole career, and so Buzzer put me to work on Guernsey in the unlikely event the Germans invaded. We felt safe in Guernsey, but unfortunately the Germans did invade eventually, and in 1943, without warning, a battalion of troops landed on the island and announced their intentions. 
Guernsey immediately surrendered to German rule because they had no military. Why, oh why, had we left the comparative safety of London? Now we were at the beck and call of the Nazis. Shortly after they arrived, they interviewed all the residents on Guernsey. They began to ask questions about everyone's heritage and insisted on seeing birth certificates and seemed unusually interested in our backgrounds. Bloody Krauts, they've always been a nation of number crunchers, small minds and officious behaviour. Then one evening, in July, we were all settling down after dinner when a German lorry pulled up to the house and a Nazi officer, accompanied by three goons, knocked on the door and demanded to see your grandmother. The German officer asked her what her name was and she replied, Susan Chandler, and he then asked her what her birth name had been. I remembered that she looked over at me, and for the first time since I'd met her, I saw a look of real fear in her eyes, and then she replied that her birth name was Steinberg. The officer looked down at his list, and without another word, marched her out of the door to the waiting lorry. The next few days were a nightmare for us all. We tried everything to free your grandmother, but to no avail. They wouldn't let me visit her or bring her a change of clothes or even a toothbrush. Then a week later, I went to the garrison and was told that she was no longer there but was on the way to Germany to face trial for her crimes. For what charge? I yelled. It made no difference. I couldn't get blood out of the stone. My darling wife had been arrested for God knows what. I looked over at my grandparents, trying to figure out what to say next, but nothing came, and so we sat there silently as I watched my grandmother sob quietly in her chair. The only sensible thing to be done, in my opinion, was to walk over and give her a big hug. She smiled at me through her tears, and then got herself together and picked up the story where my grandfather had left off. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do ya? When the Germans arrested me, I assumed it had something to do with me being a Jew. I'd heard rumors, of course, that Hitler intended to rid the world of all Jews, but I had no idea the lengths to which he would be willing to go. When I began working for the Foreign Office, my job had been to translate communication between Nazis and their allies that had been intercepted by us. But after Hitler became Chancellor in 1936, there was a lot of chatter about what they referred to as the Jewish problem, but never in my wildest dreams did I ever imagine that it meant the systematic decimation of millions upon millions of Jews. And also, of course, I never imagined that I would be so personally involved. The German high command apparently had told your grandfather that I was being taken to Berlin to be tried for a crime they refused to acknowledge, but in fact I was taken to Paris instead, to a place called Drancy, which was an assembly and detention camp for Jews, on the outskirts of Paris, who were to be deported to death camps like Treblinka, 
Belzec, Dachau, Auschwitz, Mauthausen, and Ravensbrück, the last place being where I was eventually sent. We lived in constant fear of brutal treatment, torture, starvation, and terror detention. For instance, the men had to endure pole hanging, which was a form of torture where their hands were tied behind their backs and they were suspended by a rope attached to their wrists and left to hang for hours at a time. I lived in a barracks with women, young and old, a number of whom would disappear on a regular basis. The guards would come into our barracks and would simply call out the name of an inmate, then frog-march them out of the hut, never to be seen again. I survived Ravensbrook for two excruciating years until May the 5th, 1945, when, to our surprise, the United States Army liberated us in a maneuver that impressed the most battle-hardened of us. We were so tired and unbelievably grateful to the liberating forces. The fact that we were alive was extraordinary, and after all of us realized the significance, all I wanted to do was try to get a message to Eric as soon as possible. First of all, our wonderful liberating forces allowed us to send a telegram to our loved ones. I managed to send it to our house in Eaton Terrace, figuring that the moment Eric had heard that the war had been won, he'd beetle home, knowing that if I were still alive, Eaton Terrace would be the first place I'd contact him at. How right he was. Finally, just three days before we were scheduled to leave the refugee camp, I managed to telephone the Haddinghams, where Eric and I had evacuated to after we left London during the Brits. I spoke with a delighted buzzer who told me that Eric had stayed with them until right after V-Day, and then, just as I had assumed, had beetled home to await my arrival at 37 Eden Terrace. Two days later, after crossing the English Channel, 16 of us Jews arrived in England at the port of Dover, where we boarded a train to London, and 90 minutes later, I arrived safely at Waterloo Station, where I found an anxious-looking man scanning the platform for his first sight of me. We saw each other about the same time, and it was just like a scene out of a Clark Cable movie. Your grandfather first saw me and began running towards me. After five steps in, I saw him and dropped my one bag and began running towards him. When we finally reached each other, he scooped me up and gave me the longest kiss which seemed to last at least two hours. Nothing needed to be said, and so we just stood there holding each other as if there was no tomorrow. Finally, still holding on to one another, we walked to the taxi rank to find a taxi to take us home. My first few weeks home were like a dream. Freedom is a commodity that one takes for granted until it's taken away from you, and so just the fact that I could sleep until when I wanted, eat when I wanted, go for walks when I wanted was such a luxury. Never again would I take freedom for granted. My grandmother slumped down in her chair, remembering all the horrors she had endured at the camp where she had been incarcerated for more than two years. I was desperately trying to think of something that might lift her spirits and suddenly remembered that I had stuck the photo I had taken last year of Mum and Dad in my pocket. I reached in and said, 
I bought a photograph of Mum and Dad with me and thought you might like to see it. Why, yes, we'd love to see one, she replied, and so I fished it out of my pocket and handed it to her. She looked at it, and then her face turned ashen grey, and without saying a word, she handed it over to my grandfather. He took one look at the photo, and his jaw went slack as he sat there staring at the picture, muttering something unintelligible. Frankly, I was taken aback by their reaction, and just sat there silently waiting for them to say something, anything but still silence. Finally, I broke the silence and stammered, What's wrong? Please tell me. And my grandmother looked back at me, and with tears streaming down her face, simply said, The photograph that you just showed us is not our son. The man is in fact someone I knew very well, however, because he was actually the Gestapo commandant at Drancy, the camp the Nazis first sent me to after I was arrested and arrived in Europe. His name is Colonel Otto von Braden, and he's a brutal man who took great delight in humiliating and torturing the Jews who'd been incarcerated there. Tears were now streaming down her face, so much so that my grandfather stood up, came over to his wife, and hugged her tight to his chest until her crying slowed down. I was desolate, thinking that a happy holiday snap of my mum and dad would in fact be a tonic for all the tragedy this poor woman had endured. After my grandmother stopped crying and the shock had worn off, I explained that the two people in the photo were my parents. However, on the inside, my mind was racing a mile a minute. I was now doubly confused. I just wanted to get back to Balliol and try to make sense of all this madness. I heard myself explaining to these nice old people that I had been raised by these two people and for over twenty years had considered them to be my rock, my security and my comfort. In a second, everything I held dear had been trashed and now I had more questions than answers. <laughs> ¶¶